Our text for this morning is going to be taken from Hebrews chapter 5, the first 11 verses. So um, I'm going to read the entire text this morning just so we have the whole thing in our minds. Let's give reverence to the word of the Lord by standing as I read this morning's text. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning now at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but just as he who is called by God, just as Aaron was." so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, And hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Father, I pray that by your grace, none of this, none of us this morning would be dull of hearing. Rather, we would open up our hearts and our minds and our entire beings to the presence and the work of your spirit. And that we would hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to this congregation at this time. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The whole letter to the Hebrew Christians is about encouraging discouraged Christians. And through several different arguments and truths throughout the book, that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews seeks to do. Now, at this point in the letter to the Hebrews, he's trying to encourage these discouraged Christians by setting before them the fact that Jesus Christ is a compassionate, a sympathetic, a helpful high priest. Now, to you and I, the concept of a high priest may mean very little. We live in a different time. We live in a different culture. But I want you to understand, for those first century Christians who came from a Jewish background, the idea of a high priest was very important to them. They understood that in some way they connected to God through the high priest, that they couldn't come to God on their own initiative or on their own standing. But they had to come through the mediator that God himself had appointed. And there was a high priest who officiated at Jerusalem. And if they were going to come and be right with God, they had to come through that high priest. 
Well, that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews wants to do in this section is apply that truth, understanding that Jesus is our high priest. And in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter five, he's going to explain general principles about the high priest, specifically that the high priest had to have two essential functions or qualifications. First of all, he had to be full of compassion. And secondly, he had to be called by God. Look at it here in the first four verses. For every high priest is taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who was called by God, just as Aaron was. The first thing that he points out in verse one is that the high priest was to be taken from among men. In other words, when God wanted to appoint a mediator, someone who would stand between God and man and represent God to man and man to God, he chose a man to do it, which is a little bit fascinating because you think that at least theoretically God could have chosen an angelic being to stand in between God and men, but he didn't. And one of the reasons why was because God wanted a being who would be full of compassion, who would have the compassion of God on his heart. That's why he says there in verse two, he can have compassion. You see, even though one of the main duties of the high priest was for himself to offer sacrifices and to supervise and organize the other priests who offered sacrifices before God, the high priest was much more than just a meat cutter. Much more than just a butcher who cut up animals and laid them on an altar before God. No, ideally, the high priest did all of his work with a heart full of compassion towards the people. We sort of picture it in our mind. We picture an ancient Israelite bringing his offering to the temple or to the tabernacle to be sacrificed unto the Lord. And as he brings that little lamb, let's say it was a lamb to the temple, he brings it before the priest and the priest inspects the lamb and makes sure that it was suitable to be offered to God because you just couldn't offer to God the worst lamb from your flock. Okay, this one is going to die in a couple days. God, you can have it. No, you're supposed to bring to God the very best from your flock. So it would be inspected by the high priest and or excuse me, by one of the priests. And if the priest approved it, then the priest would say, okay, Ancient Israelite, this is what you need to do. You need to place your hands upon the head of the lamb. Can you picture that? And as your hands are on the head of that lamb, you need to confess your sins. Can you imagine that ancient Israelite with tears streaming down his face? Oh, Lord, I'm a sinner here. Lord, this is where I failed you. This is where I need to be more consecrated. Lord, these are my sins. And you would hope. That the priest standing next to that man confessing his sins as he lays his hands on that on that lamb, that that priest wouldn't have a hard heart and go, all right, when is this going to get over? We've got more sacrifices to do. You would hope, ideally speaking, that priest, his heart is filled with compassion towards that man. 
His heart is identifying. I know the struggles you go through. I know the weaknesses in your life. My heart goes out to your dear friend who's confessing your sins. And then they make an altar and almost together with a heart full of compassion, the priest officiates as that man offers that sacrifice for atonement or for dedication or consecration or thanksgiving or whatever it was. God was so concerned that the priest, and in particular, the high priest, have this heart of compassion, the compassion towards those who are ignorant, towards those who are going astray. By the way, this is something that the church should always be communicating. The church should always communicate compassion to the ignorant, compassion towards those who are going astray. Isn't it tragic that a lot of times the church communicates, I don't know, anger, Hatred, judgment to the ignorant, anger, hatred, judgment to those who are going astray. In any regard, here's what God wanted the high priest to do was the high priest was to wear a uniform that would remind him of the compassion that we were supposed to uh, have. Uh, We'd studied this in the book of Exodus. We saw that the specific clothing that God wanted the high priest to wear, one aspect of that clothing was a breastplate that had 12 stones inlaid in it. And on each one of those 12 stones was written the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So that not only symbolically... But literally, he had the people of Israel on his heart. And that's how God wanted the high priest to be, full of compassion, full of grace for the people. And that was God's intention. Now, that wasn't the only thing, though, about the high priest. The high priest was also to be reminded of the sin of the people and his own sin, because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the the greatest day of the year for the high priest in Israel, he would offer sacrifices not only for the entire nation, but before he could offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He had to make himself pure before God. And there were several reasons for this. But one of the great reasons was, was to simply remind that priest, you are a sinner as well as those people. It's always a dangerous thing when a leader among God's people begins to see himself in detachment from the people at large. As if the preacher would say, God forbid if I would ever have this attitude. Oh, you dirty sinners. If only you could come up and walk with God on the level that I walk with him. Instead of what? Instead of seeing we walk with God the same. You're tempted. You're tried. You struggle. You stumble. You have the Holy Spirit pick you up. I experience all those things myself. So as the high priest was to make that offering, it says right there, verse three, that because of this, he's required as for the people. So also for himself to offer sacrifices for his sins. And the most prominent day he would do this would be on the Day of Atonement. Now, did you know that on the Jewish calendar, just yesterday, September 14th was the Day of Atonement. And biblically speaking, on the Day of Atonement, there was sort of an elaborate set of sacrifices that the high priest was supposed to officiate at. And among those sacrifices, he was to make a sacrifice for his own sin, but then also a sacrifice for the people. And he was to bring that sacrificial blood first for his own sins and then for the people behind the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he was to go and sprinkle that atoning blood upon the Ark of the Covenant, 
fearing that perhaps God might strike him dead for daring to come into the most holy place with, with a wrong attitude or with a sinful heart. And that's what he would do. Now, in modern Judaism, there is no sacrifice. There is no temple. There is no recognized priesthood. There is no ritual on the Day of Atonement. In modern Judaism, many Jews fast on the Day of Atonement as a way to sort of sacrifice and afflict themselves. And they trust that the good that they've done will outweigh the bad. I mean, I say this with all reverence, but but yet I, I want to say it directly to those who would believe such a thing. That is not a sufficient atonement. The Bible says this. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. And instead of looking to what we might do to earn our own atonement or to earn our own forgiveness. No, we need to look to our high priest and the perfect sacrifice that he made. So all this has to do with the compassion that the high priest was supposed to have. But the high priesthood wasn't only about compassion. It was also about calling. And look at what he says right here in verse four. He says, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You see, the high priest was taken from the community of God's people, but he wasn't elected. It was a hereditary succession. The first high priest was Aaron. The next high priest was Aaron's oldest surviving son. The next high priest was the oldest son of the oldest son and the oldest son of the oldest son, supposedly all the way down to the days when this was being written. And so that was the high priest. It was a hereditary office. You became the high priest because you were called by God, not because you were just appointed by a man, not because you were ambitious. In ancient Israel, when they had career day at high school, there was no booth for high priest. You were either in it by heredity, by heredity or you were out. Those were the only options. And there are a few awful cases in the Bible where somebody attempted to serve a priestly function and they were not a priest. And God, well, God dealt with it. Korah and his, son, and his sons in the book of Numbers, they tried to take that high priestly position. And God said, no, no, no. The earth opened up and swallowed him up. Saul, the king of Israel, tried to take priestly functions upon himself and offer sacrifices. And God said, no, 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 I reject you as being king over Israel. Later on in Second Chronicles, a king named Uzziah tried to take a priestly function and go into the temple and burn a sacrifice of incense under the Lord. And God said, no way, and struck him with leprosy. Over and over again in the scriptures, we have this thing. You cannot take to yourself the role of a high priest. You cannot appoint your own priest. You must receive the priest that God has appointed. Now, I want to pause right here because this all might sound very theoretical to many. You may agree with it, but it all sounds very theoretical. Let me say on this particular point, the point that you cannot appoint your own priest, this is eminently practical. Because in our day and age, we live in the midst of a culture where everybody essentially, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, I mean it for effect, where everybody essentially wants to be their own priest before God. Whenever somebody says this, man, I don't need the Bible. I'll follow my own heart to God. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, I'll be my own priest. I don't need to come God's appointed way. 
I don't need to come through God's appointed priest or mediator. I'll make my own way before God. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, forget about God's appointed priest. I'll be my own priest before God. Now, look. For these ancient Israelites or these ancient Jewish Christians that, that uh, the writer of the Hebrews wrote to, for them, the big question was, you have a high priest and it's Jesus. For us, I think the great question for us to hear is that, or the great statement we need to hear, I should say, is you need a high priest. We live uh, in a culture, American culture, that really prizes individualism. And I have to tell you, there's a lot about that that I like. I like the dynamic character of that. I like the entrepreneurial attitude. I love that can-do spirit. There is a lot good to be said for American individualism. But not when you want to come to God. When you want to come to God, you have to come by his appointed means, through his appointed high priest and savior. And that's Jesus Christ himself. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that you can be your own priest before God. Well, having talked about these two qualifications, compassion and calling. Now he's going to talk about Jesus specifically, starting at verse 5, where he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Did you see it there in verse 5? Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. You see, what the writer of the Hebrews wants us all to understand is that Jesus is our high priest, but he didn't gain it just because he was ambitious, just because he wanted to choose it as his career or calling. No, God the Father said to the Son, you are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. First, he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, where he says, Today I have begotten you. In other words, the father says to the son, you are my son. But then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, where he says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's two things I have to pause and and just make note of here. Number one, to this ancient audience that the writer of the Hebrews first wrote to, It makes a lot of sense why they would be confused about Jesus being their high priest. Because every high priest that came to Israel through the line of Aaron came from a different tribe that Jesus came from, came from a different family and served at the temple. Friends, Jesus was often in an adversarial position with the priesthood of his day. Jesus never officiated sacrifices at the temple. Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi. You could think of a lot of reasons why an ancient Christian from a Jewish background might say, how could Jesus be my high priest? And the writer to the Hebrews is going to address all that. And he's going to address all that by taking a look at a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you see that line there from Psalm 110? That there's a different kind of priesthood. Yes, there's the priesthood of Aaron, but there's also the priesthood according to Melchizedek, and that's what he's going to talk about. And it introduces us to one of these fascinating characters in the Bible, Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek, who's only mentioned briefly in half a chapter in the book of Genesis, and then briefly in just a couple of verses in Psalm 110, suddenly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the um, understanding of the writer to the Hebrews, Melchizedek is going to be a very important person in the Old Testament who streaks across the sky of God's revelation like a meteor shining briefly but brightly and showing us something very important about Jesus. Now, I know about you, but I have found that in my years as a Bible teacher, people are fascinated by Melchizedek and people want to talk about Melchizedek. Who was he? What did he do? How does he fit in God's plan? And I can't wait to talk about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. Because i got to be honest, right here, he's only introducing him. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to get into Melchizedek. We're going to give you all the Melchizedek that you can stand when we get into chapter 7. But this is the point that you need to get right here. Right now, he's simply establishing Jesus' credentials to the priesthood in association with Melchizedek, not in association with Aaron. So that covers his calling. Yes, Jesus truly is called to be our high priest. Now, what about the compassion? Well, look at the compassion right here, starting at verse 7, where it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. If anybody here doubts that Jesus cares and has compassion upon you and wants to connect with you, I want to persuade you that he does. The writer of the Hebrews shows us the path how. In verse 7, it seems that he takes a picture of Jesus' life, and he doesn't exactly say that it's a picture from the Garden of Gethsemane, but I don't know, it certainly seems to fit very well. Can you picture Jesus there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? The cross is before him. And not only does he dread the physical agony that the cross entails, but even more than that, he dreads something that in some sense he would be separated from fellowship from God, his father. And upon him would be put all the guilt, all the shame, all the judgment that your sin and my sin deserves, that it would be placed upon him. So much so that he knew that he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus anticipates that, there he is praying on his knees, perhaps prostrate on the ground before his God and father in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sweat rolls down his face and drops so big that it's like those drops of coagulated blood. And he's sweating, even though it's a cool night, he's perspiring and the stress and the agony is so great. And the writer of Hebrews takes us back to that little vignette of Jesus his life and he holds it before us and he says this God knows what it's like in your life he knows the stress he knows the pressure he knows the agony he knows the difficulty of temptation he knows the difficulty of suffering both experienced and anticipated and he prayed and he laid it all out 
I like what the old Puritan commentator John Trapp said about this. He said, these prayers were most ardent moans uttered with deep sighs, hands lifted up and manifold moans in a most submissive manner. But yet, despite all that, despite the depth of his agony, verse 7 also tells us that he was heard because of his godly fear. He asked the Father that if there is any way possible, please take this cup from him. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And in the garden, Jesus didn't pray to escape the Father's will, but rather he prayed for the strength and the grace to be able to fulfill the Father's will. And he was heard because of his godly fear. And he went to the cross and he fulfilled to the utmost, laying down a sacrifice, pleasing to the father and fulfilling the payment for sin. And it was all demonstrated to be true and great because he rose from the dead three days later. That is the greatness of how God answered the prayer of Jesus in the garden. But if you want to go deeper with this. The writer of the Hebrews again makes the compassionate connection to your life and my life through that great phrase in verse eight, where he says this. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This is a verse that you could turn over in your mind again and again and meditate on multitudes of times and always come away with something new and something fresh. Would you just think about it for a moment? First of all, think about how mind-blowing it is that God the Son would learn anything. What could he learn? He's God. Is anybody in this room going to teach God something? You can't teach him anything. Ah, but there is something that God can learn, because as we think of God enthroned in glory in the heavens, he doesn't obey anybody. Everybody obeys him. But for God to learn obedience by experience, for him to experience obedience, he had to, so to speak, walk the ladder down from heaven. He had to add humanity to his deity. He had to humble himself to the place where he would learn and practice and experience obedience, obedience to his parents as a little child. Obedience to the authorities as a as a young man growing up. Obedience to God, his father in every circumstance. Obedience as a child, as a teen, as a man. Obedience in spectacular tests, such as when he was tempted in the wilderness, such as when he went to the cross. But let me remind you of this. Jesus also learned what it was like to obey God in the ordinary, even mundane things of everyday life. Might I say, this is what trips many of us up. Oh, we're up for a big challenge. God, give me a mighty challenge and I'll meet the test. Yes, but how about just living as a faithful man or woman of God tomorrow on Monday? You know, God wants to move in the very ordinary things of our day too, doesn't he? And I want you to understand, Jesus experienced and learned obedience even in those very ordinary things of life. He learned and experienced obedience in it all. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in the midst of this. He commented on this by saying, Obedience is a trade to which a man must be apprenticed until he has learned it, for it is not to be known in any other way. Even our blessed Lord could not have fully learned obedience by the observation in others of such an obedience as he personally had to render. 
for there was no one from whom he could thus learn. Therefore, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You know, it's those last few words that really get me. To me, the idea of Jesus and learning obedience is a fascinating theological subject. But doing it through the things which he suffered, that hits me right here. Because this is what I understand. That if suffering was an appropriate tool to teach Jesus, how dare I despise it in my life? Look, I think I'm just like most of you. That if truth be told, too many times the main goals of my life are comfort and ease. Sometimes it's disturbing for me to figure out, you know what, God, I guess those aren't your main goals for my life. To think, oh, if I'm not comfortable, that I must be out of God's will. But to realize that, no. God may appoint for me a season of affliction. God may give me a period of suffering. Why? So that I may learn obedience, even as Jesus did. But I remember this, that even if I'm in a season of suffering and learning obedience by it, Jesus is right there with me. He's right there with me saying, I experienced this too. I learned obedience through the things I suffered. May I strengthen you. May I be with you in the midst of your suffering. And if I'll allow him in, he'll be there and he'll do something really glorious, really wonderful in the midst of it. Friends, I think one of the most important things that we can have as Christians is have a proper understanding of the role of suffering. And it's not easy. Because the last thing in the world I want to tell you is that all the suffering you have in your life, it's of God and God, you know, has appointed it. No. I I believe that there's a lot of suffering that I put myself through. I put myself through through my own stupidity and God would love to deliver me from my own stupidity. It's not God that's appointed me that affliction. It's my own sin. And perhaps there's other suffering that I experience in my life that God wants to deliver me from. That he says, David, this isn't my will for you. Trust me and I'll deliver you from it. But friends, there is suffering that I may endure or that you may endure. That God says, my child, though this is difficult, this is my path for you at the present time. Would you believe me in the midst of it? And would you walk with me and learn something through this suffering? I look at the the scriptures and this is what it tells me. You see, the Bible never teaches us that a strong faith will keep a Christian from all suffering. Instead, Christians, it says, are appointed to affliction in 1 Thessalonians 3. Acts chapter 14, Paul told believers that it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we're told that our present suffering is the prelude to our ultimate glorification. So, friends, this is what I'm saying. Don't despise God's tool of suffering in your life or in the lives of those around you. It's painful, but yet it can be a beautiful tool that he uses to teach us obedience and to teach us a deeper trust in him. Let's continue on verse nine. And having been perfected, 
He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then now just the first portion of verse 11, of whom we have much to say. You see, now Jesus, having learned obedience by the things which he suffered, verse 9 tells us that having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. Jesus' experience of suffering and his ultimate uh, resurrection after that means that he is fully capable to be the author of our salvation. Now, friends, this is another important point. Let me just drive it home quickly. You can't author your own salvation. You need Jesus to be the author of your salvation. You try to author your own salvation, that book is a mess. But you let Jesus author your salvation... He is perfected. He is fit and ready to do it. But I think that there's some people who don't want Jesus to author their salvation. They'd rather have it said of them at the end. Hey, man, I did it my way, your way. Listen, authoring your own salvation is a way to end up with no eternal salvation. No, but Jesus is the author of salvation. Do you love that phrase in there? He's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The writer of the Hebrews just figured that, well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to obey him. I think it's a strange thing. And it's something that's current in the world today that Christians all over again need to be called to a new and a fresh obedience to Jesus Christ. Look, just obey him. If he tells you to do something, do it. If he tells you to stop doing something, then stop doing it. God helping you and with the strength he gives you, Obey him. Now, if you want to obey Jesus, let me tell you where to begin. Begin obeying Jesus by putting your trust in him and your love upon him. Trust him and love him. That's where obedience begins. Oh, that's not where it ends. God wants obedience to extend to every aspect of your being, every aspect of your life. But I'll tell you where obedience begins. It begins with you trusting him and loving him. And that's what God has called us to do so called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and he's all winding up getting ready to expound and talk about Melchizedek he has so many interesting things to say about Melchizedek but do you see what it says there in verse 11 of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing you see what he's saying Oh, readers, I have so much that I want to tell you about Melchizedek. But I don't think you're ready for it. I've got to deal with some spiritual issues first. Then we'll get to Melchizedek. So can you wait? Can you wait till chapter 7 before we pick up Melchizedek again? Starting with next time, we're going to go off in this digression. And we're going to deal with one of the most fascinating And might I say controversial passages in the book of Hebrews, maybe in the whole New Testament. But to me, it's extremely instructive and we'll deal with it over a couple of weeks. But that's for next time. For us, what are we left with? We are left with a called and a compassionate high priest. Friends, that's what I want to emphasize with you right now at the end. Do you know that you have a sympathetic high priest in heaven? And do you know 
how foolish it is for you to try to be your own high priest. Rather, this book being your guide and focused on Jesus Christ, come to him as your faithful and compassionate high priest. Thirdly, are you willing to receive from God the lessons of obedience that come to your life through suffering? And then finally, don't author your own salvation. Let Jesus Christ be the author of it. Father, this is my prayer. My prayer is that this room would be filled with those who inherit eternal life, living lives of trust and love and obedience in Jesus. So, Jesus, we look to you, our great, sympathetic high priest. And, Lord, I I fear, I fear that through the weakness of words that I can say that perhaps there's some people in this room, they still haven't really got it uh, about how wonderful and how powerful and how sympathetic and compassionate Jesus is as their high priest. Jesus, I pray that you would break through and go beyond whatever weak abilities I have to explain such amazing things. That by the power and the strength of your spirit, you would speak to hearts individually and persuade us of the compassion of our great high priest. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.